0: Shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist.
1: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our 10th anniversary broadcast on BBS radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with a new perspective based on cognitive function, to keep the fires of innovation, pioneering, and our shared culture of giving burning for future generations. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most social problems, disability challenges, poverty, violence, crime, and all those society ills we rail against, but with little regard to consequence and efficacy. Today's podcast episode is focused on bipolar disorder in association with cognitive functioning and the emotional budgeting process. Our discussion will center on our emotional responses. This is a call-in podcast. You may at any time feel free to call in with any questions you may have in regard to cognitive function and our program in, with emotional budgeting on bipolar disorder today. Please call toll free 888-627-6008 in the US or from Canada and direct to 323-744-4831. Today for our podcast discussion, we are accepting the following definition for bipolar disorder classification. As defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, here known as here uh, from here on out known as the DSM, and that would be DSM four. Although five is out now, mania is the cardinal symptom of bipolar disorder. Without the mania, it would be considered depres- depressive disorder. There are several types of bipolar disorder based upon the specific duration and pattern of manic and depressive episodes. People who experience clinically significant episodes of mania and depression but who do not meet criteria for bipolar disorder are diagnosed as bipolar disorder, not otherwise specified. Meeting criteria for any diagnosis in the DSM is based upon the presence of certain symptoms over a specified period of time. In the description of bipolar disorder, the DSM first explains what is required for the different behavioral mood episodes, major depressive episode, manic episode, mixed episode, and hypomanic episode. It then differentiates the diagnosis according to the present sequence and history of those episodes. So, for example, the following, following information provided by the DS 4th edition includes bipolar 1 and 2 behavioral episodes. A major depressive episode includes at least 5 of the following symptoms occurring over the same 2-week period. must include either 1 or 2. Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as reported by self. I feel sad um, can be an irritable mood is also market, uh, Number two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. Most of the day, nearly every day, significant weight loss. Number three, significant weight loss or gain. That would be loss or gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Insomnia, hyper insomnia, nearly every day psychomotor, agitation, pacing, uh, things like that, Uh, retardation such as slowed thinking, speech, or body movement nearly every day that can be observed by others. Number six, fatigue or lost energy nearly every day. Number seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive, inappropriate, or delusional guilt nearly every day. Number eight, diminished ability to think, concentrate, or indecisiveness nearly every day. Number nine, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. Manic episodes includes a period of at least one week during which the person is abnormally or persistently elevated or irritable mood. While indiscriminately euphoric mood is the classical expectation, the person may instead be predominantly irritable. He or she may also alternate back and forth between the two. This period of mania, must be marked by three of the following symptoms to a significant degree. If the person is only irritable, they must experience four of the following symptoms, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, uh, delusional sense of expertise, decreased need for sleep. Uh, Number three, intensified speech, uh, that includes loud, rapid, and difficult to interrupt focus on sounds. Number four, rapid jumping around of ideas or feels like thoughts are racing. Number five, distractibility. Number six, increase in goal-oriented activity. Uh, And number seven, excessive, excessive involvement in pleasurable activities that have a high risk consequence. A hypomanic episode is similar to manic, but less intense. It only requires required to persist for four days and it should be observable by others that the person is noticeably different from his or her regular non-depressed mood, that the change has an impact on his or her functioning. So here is the clue to the importance of the DSM in its consideration of labeling, the impact on his or her functioning. For all four of these episodes, and there is a mixed episode, which would be a mixture of depression and manic episodes nearly every day, but the mixed symptoms only need to last for one week period. So for all of these episodes, the symptoms must have an impact on the person's ability to function and can't derive some from some other circumstance or illness that would logically or better account for its expression. So what is the DM say, DMS saying, if you have the symptoms, but it doesn't impact you functionally, don't worry. You're fine. But if you have the symptoms and it impacts you function, your function, you're in trouble. You are experiencing the issues of those symptoms, but this is slightly different. And I'm just making a note here because it's a different distinction in perhaps how we solve these, uh, support these issues. But the distinction would be that in the medical field, one who has a disease does not normally indicate whether they are functional or not functional. It is assumed that if you have a disease that it does impact your function in one way or another, but it may not, one can go to work with cancer one can go to work with a cold, one can go to work with many diseases, but if one breaks a leg, they may be non-functional for a day, and then they are functional, but they have still broken their leg. Or if, as a disease, they will still have the disease. Whereas, in consideration of what the DSM has just described, if it is not impacting your function, they are not going to classify it as a disorder, but you may still have all those symptoms. So that is a consideration to think through, uh, what it is that we are working with. Bipolar one and two, the difference, the main difference between bipolar one and two is full mania, seven days, hypomania, four days. Once a person experiences a full manic episode, they will receive a, a number, uh, bipolar one diagnosis, bipolar one disorder, uh, the manic episode gets broken down into another six different subdiagnoses, and the same with bipolar 2 disorder. It's all there in the DSM, or uh, you can always uh, understand those distinctions. To move on, as we have a lot to cover today, it's pretty exciting. We're going to dwell into the importance of the relevance of what we just discussed as R as function. If again, if this was a disease, why would function be relevant? One can work through a disease to a point, maybe or maybe not. So to answer this conundrum with the DSM's identification as a bipolar issue of symptoms and a function, we are going to review. Cognitive function evolution in humans. This will inevitably support our perception, our revolution in perception of how we might better review and look at these issues. We will review the possible implications of dimorphic cognitive development in humans to begin with. We discussed in our autism podcast, we hinted at the possible dimorphic nature of cognitive development of our brains across the world's populations as humans, as the one species, that there are specific brain architecture differences evolving in a divergent evolution manner with our brain trying to adapt to current environmental situations Low everywhere that we are in the world. To better picture this ongoing development, let's take a step backwards into recent discoveries of when Neanderthal met modern man. Today we have from 1 to 4% of genetic material across different populations that includes Neander- Neanderthal's genome or genetic material in different er- that influences different areas of our bodies. We are all considered modern humans today. In other words, Neanderthals have long ceased to exist, but their DNA is still within us. The melding of different humanoids also included differences in brain function. The Neanderthal influence on cognitive function. So taking some information from... give voice to what I am looking to describe today on our podcast from the website sciencedaily.com uh, dated November 9 2010 by Max Plack and Gischoft, which is German. researchers documented species difference in patterns of brain development, after birth that are likely contribute to cognitive differences between modern humans and Neanderthal. That seems pretty obvious, but again, we represent one to 4% across populations of the genetic material. The importance of looking through the cognitive lens is to make sense of disorders in order to provide the perspective in support of understanding for all of us. So we are looking at this because it gives hint to the differences that we might experience between us in cognitive functioning. We will try to address the beginning of this perspective revolution with the relationship of bipolar disorder and cognitive functioning and the integration of Neanderthal's gene with modern man's gene pool. The first part of this program will explore what potential differences in brain development means for general individual awareness and support. That you may notice that I have avoided the word treatment. So we are not here to discuss today the treatment, the medical treatment or the psychiatric treatment of bipolar disorder, but we are in discussion of what that means in the long term and the foundation from a cognitive functioning perspective The change in our perception of how we work to overcome mental health issues is to begin with the identification of what is happening. DSM identifications are only an indication of professional labeling of symptoms, not necessarily disease, as we discussed, because it is associated with a function or a lack, inability to function. Because behaviors may have many causation, it begs the question of treatment planning, which we will not be discussing today. For our revolution from a cognitive functioning perspective, we will look at these disorders in terms of function when the brain is no longer able to adapt to its environment and the individual needs support to function within expectations. And we have, in our previous podcast, we have discussed those expectations in cultural terms and those expectations in adaptation terms. And to hear today, we are looking at what might be those differences in functioning, cognitive functioning evolution. After stripping away all these labels of symptoms, the question we pose is what functional challenges is this individual experiencing? And what are the supports needed to help that individual operate within our expectations in society? So we have groups of individuals who are likely functional in bipolar symptoms, as well as those who may have the same symptoms, but are having difficult functioning to meet the expectations in society. So why is that important? We, when we look through the prism of DSM's labeling practice, we notice that time is an element of diagnosis. How often is this impacting an individual's ability to function? Why is this important? It is important because we are striving to identify the symptoms and the differences in cognitive functioning as it relates to awareness and support. And if we'd simply draw the line in the sand between an individual has the symptoms but is functioning and those who have the same symptoms but can't function as we do with autism then perhaps we're missing the bigger picture of why it is happening and what can we do across the population to support better these issues so back to the Neanderthals and the differences researchers at Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany have documented, documented the species differences in the pattern of brain development after birth are likely to contribute to cognitive difference between modern humans and Neanderthals. Modern humans and Neanderthals, therefore, reach large adult adult brain sizes via different developmental pathways so this is just a review of the history of our ancestors and the evolution of potential differences in cognitive functioning establishing it goes on to say this research paper establishing when the species differences between neanderthal and modern human adults emerge during development, was critical for the understanding whether differences in the pattern of brain development might underlie potential cognitive differences, as the differences between modern humans and Neanderthals are most prominent in a period directly after birth. They likely have implication for the neural and synaptic organization of the developing brain. So the key here is not necessarily all of the obvious, the brain size and all of these, but the... Implications for the neuron, the neural and synaptic organization of the developing brain. This goes back to what we want to, we are demonstrating in the curve and the sharing between bipolar disorder and those who have been diagnosed with autism disorder spectrum ASD. The development of cognitive abilities during individual growth is linked to the maturation of the underlying wiring pattern of the brain around the time of birth. Neural circuitry is sparse in humans, and clinical studies have linked even subtle alterations in the early brain development to changes in the neural wiring patterns that affect behavior and cognition. The connections between diverse brain regions that are established during this period in modern humans are important for higher order, social, emotional, and communication functions. It is therefore unlikely that Neanderthals saw the world as we do. And that, to me, my friends and audience, is the clue that I am trying to provide to how perceptions from bipolar disorders, symptoms, is a clue to the cognitive differences with those who are on the autistic spectrum side and we know from general observations that perceptions of how we see the world is different from those who have even the autism disorders from the general population and those with bipolar disorders. So we can imagine the difference from one side to the other and The difference in perspective that we have from each other with this wide scope of cognitive development and function. What did we inherit from the Neanderthals? Here are some suggestions from the website sapiens.org and Emma Harris in February 2016. They write. New research suggests that we inherited depression risk, smoking, addiction, and other health cognitive traits may be partially shaped by the Neanderthal DNA that persists in modern humans. Does that sound familiar? What we just read for bipolar, we kind of shaping through indications that some of this persists through modern humans, although it's not. Named directly, there seems to be some shared indication. And there are other traits, but I'm only indicating those traits today that we have shared with bipolar depression. It's just not to say that Neanderthals were bipolar, but we will, we have in our previous podcast indicated the importance of when is something functional and when is an adaptation considered a disorder? It is not necessarily that the brain development has changed, but the environment has or the adaptation has. A new study published in science suggests that Neanderthal DNA could have influenced biology to a surprising degree. When humans left Africa, they ran into some Neanderthal, in Eurasia between 50 and 60,000 years ago. As a result, European and Asian descent can trace about 1.5% of their DNA back to Neanderthal ancestors. And this is just a round, rough figure of average. And we can kind of leap forward in, in thinking that perhaps it has been shown that some have very little and some have as high as 4%. So how this has shaped our DNA is research hints that a lot of Neanderthal DNA was maladaptive for us. That is not to say that it may, that DNA for Neanderthals during that period of the ice age or cold period or ice and mammoths may have been important enough to provide survival adaptations to do as well as they did. They existed around 400 to 700,000 years when they split off earlier. So this may have been an adaptive trait that was beneficial for the Neanderthals. And as climate or environment changed or as modern man gained some momentum or advantage, it was not as great an adaptation as modern man may have had. But there are indications that these adaptations were most likely absolutely advantageous for them at that time. So in the study, a team led by John Capra uh, is indicated uh, of the Vanderbilt Genetics Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, publishes an analysis of records and genomes of more than 28,000 adults of European ancestry ancestry that links their Neanderthal DNA variants to clinical traits and diseases listed in their file. So they weren't surprised to find influences of their adaptation, such as skin patches triggered by sun exposure, assuming they didn't have so much sun, and again, they the link between Neanderthal DNA and depression risk smoking addiction and other psychiatric and cognitive traits neanderthal sequence only explained two percent of a person's risk of developing depression and some other neanderthal sequences reduced depression risk but we can see that this is due to the fact that already we understand that their cognitive functioning was different their brain shapes were different that this influence does can help us understand that the brain does provide mechanisms for difference in adaptation and functions. And we can still exist. We can still survive when we have those existence because we are expressing genetic expression to meet the current environmental expectations. In the Smithsonian indicates that Ancient Neanderthal DNA still influences our genes today. Far from being silent remnants, Neanderthal genes play a profound role in how modern genes are expressed, even though they went extinct 30,000 years ago. So what are the possible effects of cognitive differences evolving today? Today, the DSM label has labeled the symptoms of autism on a spectrum that has defined a cutoff in similar that bipolar disorder has with time. In other words, you have to have so many of these issues within a period of time that has to be consistent and persistent and impacts function. In regard to symptoms once recognized, and bipolar symptoms throughout individuals in a population, what is the difference then in regards to those functions between the two? So for example, bipolar may have been a normal part, or is still in many parts of the world, bipolar symptoms in one location or culture is considered normal, is considered functional. And that person functions within the culture that was developed those specific reasons of adaptation for those characteristics. And I am not at this point to share how this may be viewed throughout different countries, but I think the listener can review individuals or countries that may share similar adaptive or cultural differences to adapt the characteristics of bipolar symptoms. One example of this, and this is not a country or a culture of that would develop specifically, but is one where, for example, domestic violence, as we consider it here, in some countries, violence towards a spouse may be more tolerated and not seen as a form of dysfunction in a way that it would be viewed here in the States, as well as there would be developed cultural modifications, perhaps in other countries, to mediate those bipolar symptoms. This behavior is often associated with rage, and so this is how our interpretation, in this country perhaps, we interpret bipolar symptoms in one form and that would be what we have has noted in many articles and research that it has been associated with rage and is noted to be prevalent with other bipolar issues in men uh, such as impatience and adhd symptoms so in an article from the website bphope.com uh Bipolar and anger, getting control of irritability and outbursts. I'm going to read just such an example that was given by Denise Mann, January 5th, 2016. Uh, Bipolar irritability and anger can damage relationships and hurt you in the workplace. It pays to learn how to prevent diffuse flare-ups and temper. It starts with a routine annoyance, the living room is a mess. And another driver cuts you off. Irritation takes hold then mushrooms as swiftly as a nuclear explosion. And I'm reading verbatim from the article. Cheeks red and the pulse quickens and boom, welcome to bipolar rage. So this to me appears to be a stereotype or a recognition that bipolar symptoms can lead to this. And they're trying to link this particular symptom with a generalized of rage for Paul of Las Vegas and it continues on an innocuous comment for his wife during dinner can flip his switch. I would go off the 45 year old architect says and apparently he's very functional as he's an architect it got bad. Paul recognized that something wasn't right with his ever-changing moods. So we have to consider that how functional is he and is he actually bipolar? by DSM standards. By our perspective of cognitive functioning, we would indicate that perhaps, yes, his cognitive functioning has with these symptoms is likely on the bipolar type of cognitive functioning architecture or how the brain is formed in the differences. But does that make him non-functional? Does that make him a bad person? What does that mean in our support of this person? So periodically, for the better part of 20 years, I would get irate over nothing, he says, continuing on with the article. Stress at work would affect his sleep, which would affect his equilibrium. He would keep it together at the office, still functional, only to take it out in harsh words at home. His three sons would make themselves scarce. His wife bore the brunt of his verbal attacks before their marriage ended. This could happen in many different ways. But in this instance, they are, of course, uh, denoting the bipolar symptoms. But in DSM terms, he's still functional, except for the, the fact that 50% of all marriages end. And his wife may have some uh, something to say about that. It was 100% the reason for my divorce, Paul says. Irritation and anger can be normal and even healthy response to certain provocations. As with many emotions, however, people with bipolar disorder appear to be more vulnerable to extreme responses. We have mentioned, I think, several times in the autism uh, uh, podcast, we may see actually similar responses and to our environment. Everyone can become frustrated or angry, but loss of control can be part and parcel of bipolar disorder rage, says Jeffrey Bornstein, MD, president and CEO of Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. Irritable mood is among the primary diagnostic criteria for mania and hypomania, and there is growing understanding that anger and irritability can be hallmarks of depression as well. Left unchecked, irritability and its Downstream cousins, anger and rage, can have dramatic and devastating effects. Family life and friendships suffer. This is all absolutely true. That is not our discussion today, whether this is true or not. It's the perspective, how we look at things through the prism of our understanding of cognitive function. So here we're looking through the prism of behaviors. This is the prism of behaviors. This is how we have looked at things for ages because it is easy to explain and regulate and judge. There can be severe repercussions in the workplace and on occasion seismic encounters with the justice system. At the least, guilty and regret after an outburst have corrosive emotional consequences. So it goes on to say the five seconds afterward there is some relief paul admits and then there is the oh my god what did i just do and the remorse would send me into a depressive state bringing bipolar mood shifts under control may lessen the pressure to blow up but that doesn't mean the volatile emotions will entirely evaporate and that my friends is what we are getting to that where anger management techniques come in such as counting to 10 taking deep breaths and finding a positive outlet instead of letting the steam build. And it goes on to say it's important to learn triggers that typically set you off in the mental and physical signs of impending eruption. Paul says that in the past year, he has gotten better at recognizing his warning signs. I feel my blood pressure start to boil and I have to catch it and calm down. We have addressed this limbic reaction in previous podcasts. These are all the things that we have discussed prior to this podcast on bipolar disorder with autism. So we are beginning to see, I hope some indications that we are looking at and developing the foundations to working through these issues from a cognitive function point of view perspective and not trying to change the brain through behavior, read, disciplines. A 2012 study involving more than 500 people found that those with bipolar one or two are more likely to be argumentative, feel hostile towards others, have hot tempers, and act out than those without the disorder. And I'm not sure for those who have been familiar with those with extreme, on the extreme end of the autism spectrum disorder, but we can also find some of those behaviors Uh, there as well. Although causation is different, especially during a mood episode, there is a greater likelihood of anger escalating quickly, resulting in sudden and explosive outbursts. However, there may be underlying differences in disposition between people who feel snappy and those who feel happy. And it goes on to explain uh, more of those things of Consider whether you feel anxious, sleep normal, and see your doctor, of course, if you can head off shifts in mania and depression. Related anger responses will also abate, points out Norman Sussman, MD. So what does this all mean? And this sounds true, I'm not denying any of this. This article uh, does indicate, and we did discuss also as well, relationships in addition to inflicting damage. The article continues in the last portion on relationships. Rage may have devastating physiological effects, explained Redford Williams, MD, director of the Behavior Medicine Research Center at Duke University School of Medicine. Anger activates body fight or flight response. I I might take note here that perhaps anger is activated by the high blood pressure, which is the release of stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol, says Williams. So again, they're indicating that their behavior of anger is controlling their limbic system and not necessarily the other way around. His books include Anger Kills, 17 Strategies for Controlling the Hostility that Can Harm Your Health. Over time, elevated levels of stress hormones cause wear and tear on all body systems. We discussed that, and when people who are irritable and easily frustrated by temperament go into anger mode, William says, all components of this anger, response occur at higher levels. And we know that people with a hostile personality type, again, this is a personality issue that they've indicated a behavior issue, develop hardening of their coronary arteries at an earlier age than less hostile counterparts. Whether or not people have anger as a component of bipolar disorder show the same exaggerated fight or flight response is not known. But anger is certainly bad for the heart, and a potential contributor to the development of heart disease and high blood pressure. And here again, I would see more of a likelihood that high blood pressure is an indication that it's going to be in advance of the anger. Clinic research demonstrates that cognitive behavioral stress management training can help people learn to reduce hostility and anger. So again, the approach is change the behavior and it will change your cognitive functioning. I beg to differ in this show. So, what is the difference between bipolar and autism? The differences often lie in the brain's chemical influences and its response to the environment. We discussed that earlier in the development of the birth at birth and how the brain's plasticity, the neural development, and the genes all are linked together and how they express their genes. In the beginning, due to their development, uh, it, to the environment that they are born into. With autism, we noted the potential. This is a recap: potential for neurons to grow, to grow in an unorganized fashion, like multiple antennas with weak neural pathways throughout the cortex, with the result of accumulation of unorganized data in the processing centers, and leading to internalized sensitivities throughout the body i think immune and stomach issues normally associated with many of the when of the diagnosis so again we are looking at when function has or issues have reached uh the extreme end of that adaptation on the autistic side as there's do not have another way to describe that dimorphism of brain development except through the disabilities that i pointed out today. So this is a discussion of dimorphism potentially between those who have, are on the autistic end of the architectural type of brain architect and those who are experiencing bipolar. If, but in bipolar it appears the response and it was just the article certainly backed me up with many uh, MD and research. The response is geared to highly monitoring system of its environment surroundings with a well-worn path, footpath of neural pathways leading to such centers as the amygdala for increased flight and fight responses and seasonal sensitivities. So, here's the explanation and here's the understanding of how Neanderthal, who may have been much more sensitive likely sensitive and fight or flight responses to their adaptations than modern men may have needed to be. The results may include lower ability to respond in classroom environments. So this is the result. The end results here. May result include lower ability to respond in classroom environments with low levels of stimulus impacted by such artificial Stimulus is fluorescent systems of lighting. So those students, and again, from the school psychologist's perspective of cognitive functioning, when we see children who fall asleep, uh, are not, are bored, or not motivated, we, instead of a behavioral issue, we might consider the fact that this is a low level of stimulus, that their adaptation of cognitive functioning is more likely to be stimulated with high activities such as sports. This may go along the way, as I just indicated, to explain how some students are very functional in sports-oriented environments while exhibiting difficulty in a classroom environment with a very low natural stimulation to maintain focus and attention. So, rather than calling these students stupid, the really what we're looking at is the change in environment and the expectation of them to be stimulated in a very low stimulant classroom environment as they might have been 30,000 years ago when mammoths and saber tooth tigers were roaming around in a very high and stressful danger fight or flight environment. And now we've stuck everyone in a classroom and expect them that their stimulus levels would be equal. And this is the importance now, we are touching upon the keystone importance of why we should begin to think of differences in our cognitive functioning and brain architecture. So we do not write people off as stupid or disabled when we really are looking at what can we do to support them due to the changes of the environment with perhaps a lack of adaptation change in their own cognitive function. So in a brief nutshell, we are introducing bipolar as a spectrum opposite or in a dimorphic position to autism, autistic spectrum. We do not have another way to explain this at this time, a better term other than by using those disorders as an example of the difference. So forgive me for, we are not lumping everyone into a label, but rather we are trying to do help and provide that these adaptations are not necessarily disorders because of the adaptations, but because of the inability to adapt, we now are needing to support these individuals in a way that their brain has not adapted for them as an individual may display qualifying symptoms but is still capable of functioning meeting society's full expectations so that is the caveat for both disorders should be an importance of function over symptoms again you can have symptoms in dsm and not be labeled as one is functional or is appeared to be functional whereas another individual who goes to a doctor is now labeled bipolar because he has indicated that he is struggling. And so we can see that w- there may be gaps in missing between those who have an issue and those who don't. So speaking to dimorphism, I briefly want to dispel the notion of how gender differences are an important part of cognitive functioning.
0: And so we were talking about how we're going to bring a case of examining why the differences between female and male gender differences in uh, cognitive functioning are not as important as perhaps may seem on the surface. So we'll take an interesting case, a single cultural case, that involves the Samoan culture adaptation as a the fa fa theme. That is the incorporation of young males to help with domestic chores in large family households, and dispelling this sexual dimorphism myth, in this culture young males, typically young males who in an all-male sibling group, the cultural adaptation uh, the caring, uh, this is an example of cultural maximizing caring capacity through the development of cultural guidelines. And in the case of Samoan Islands is and its people with limited resources and space on an island, they have arranged for the ability of a family to provide for the utilization, typically the youngest of an all male sibling group of very large families. So the mother needs help. And typically, if the if a female is not available in that family, then the youngest male with cultural, uh, with the cultural agreement that this is okay for the youngest male to take on the chores of what otherwise would be female children. Helping mom tend to household chores instead of what might otherwise be um, uh, female chores. The noted difference here would be the amount of time spent with the female authority versus male authority figures. And it becomes evident in the outcome of just how much influence our brains can develop and express different parts when in contact with different environments. Environment A with men and their environment be in the environment of women. The impact can be tremendous, and it is consistent. So the outcome has been observed that men groom to take the place of younger female siblings to share the burden of helping uh, begin to exhibit female characteristics. And it's been shown in research and CAT scans that brains have appeared, develop differently in different situations. In other words, there are parts of the brain and functions of a male who's been in the female companionship in that traditional role of providing for the family to begin to take the characteristics of the female in brain function. And a true measure of structural differences would be to compare the brain after developmental period in different environments, rather than saying simply that research often tries to show that there is a difference in female and male brains, but... There is also the time frame of having been in different environments, and that is what we have discussed time and time again. A, songbird brain, a, bird, a songbird's brain swells to an additional 40% during mating season with changes in its brain form. This is called plasticity of gene expression, and it is a vast area of unknown consequences. So cognitive differences and reactions to the environment. From the cognitive functioning in identifying cognitive differences, we can be viewed through also the dietary lens. And just quickly, one of these can, is caffeine. There are articles in reference to caffeine, and caffeine is a vasoconstrictor, which it turns out Is a detriment in in many of the bipolar reactions because now it increases blood pressure, increases uh, the possibility of anger and rage and fight and flight. And we discussed this in limbic, but caffeine prompts that, whereas autistic individuals, it may not, it may be actually a help. So this is why it's important to understand these cognitive. And functional differences. So, how does emotional budget help? Bipolar can be explained through cognitive functioning. The emotional budget program provides a pathway for cognitive functioning abilities to be increased for individuals suffering from bipolar symptoms. We have discussed this time and time again. This also includes mitigating the physiological response system. Uh, in that article, it was about anger stimulating response of the limbic system, but really lowering stress and anxiety and providing help and preventing angry outbursts in the same reason as those individuals with autism for different reasons of the brain function, but does the same thing because the ultimate outcome of the adaptation is to meet the environmental pressure, which they are doing in different ways. The outcome will be brain training of the neural pathways to different parts of the brain associated with positive memories and outcomes for both. Caffeine is generally not healthy for those individuals suffering from bipolar symptoms because it is a fast constrictor shrinking blood vessels while increasing the heart rate. In general, this may be tolerated by those on the autistic spectrum and may actually see behavioral improvements. It can be devastating for those with bipolar susceptibility to increased levels of limbic response system, and that is basically what I have mentioned in that. The Emotional Budget Program addresses the distress of the brain, feeling overwhelmed by unprocessed emotional data, and we have gone mentioned that in those articles of the anger and the response and the emotions, and that is why this is so effective. The Emotional Budgeting Program, the connection of brain distress, is a direct connection to the brain that regulates the limbic stress response. We see it here in bipolar. The brain sensing difficulty depends on the same system, sends a signal as it does, provides relief, and supports cognitive function for those searching to build a foundational basis, bringing awareness, choice, and ultimately, when one is feeling in control, responsibility. The brain's processing ability is a finite system when emotional information overwhelms the brain's processing ability. It competes with the ability of the individual to respond to the task demands with needed problem-solving skills. And we see this. They describe this, but they label it as behavior to try and control the cognitive. Instead, we are saying, here, we will support the brain and your behavior will follow. The greater the emotional distress, the greater the unorganized information becomes in the processing center of the brain, increases the brain's distress. So we have discussed this time and time again over these podcasts. We have discussed the outcome of brain distress in multiple pathways behavior seeks to address this feeling. Behavior is what follows to address the cognitive function self-medication, lashing out, looking to peers for problem-solving mechanisms such as lying, procrastination, lying, ultimately possible sense of hopelessness and working through a problem. This was described in bipolar issues, and now we are describing how cognitive function support works with the Emotional Budget Program. This is how and why the Emotional Budget Workbook was designed to support our mind, lower the distress, to prevent the synaptic and physiological signals from being sent out and creating the havoc of maladaptive behaviors that lead to poor health, violence, and in general costing all of us trillions of dollars in needless expense of daily functional difficulties. The implications of bipolar and autism spectrum disorder will be discussed in detail in my future books, The Bipolar War and the Autism Revolution, in which we will go into more detail, which we discussed today and in all of our podcasts will include extensive research and evidence of our cognitive functioning, dimorphism, as it can be observed, and how our mental health quote treatment should be focused on support of functions, not necessarily a focus on labels of symptoms. And we describe some of those issues. My next podcast my next podcast will lead to a discussion of the narrative development cognitive function, and the emotional budget program. And this is the second part of the emotional budget program, is the narrative development. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com, for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available. The workbook are available on digital, on Kindle, and in paperback on amazon.com. I would like to thank our producer, Doug Newsom, and our audience. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul Sambataro. Consultations are available through EmotionalBudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators copies of the book are available digitally on kindle and in paperback on amazon.com welcome to the brain revolution until next time